I'd love for you to take God's Word and turn to Mark chapter number 9 this morning. Mark chapter number 9 is where we'll spend our time. And again, if you're welcome, or if you're with us, we welcome you. Uh, some of you have children. You may look around and see all the kids um, with us here in the sanctuary. That's generally how we do it. Um, but we want you to know that um, if you need a nursery, it may not be staffed, but there's generally ladies back there if you need anything at all. Um, we, we desire to teach our children to um, listen to God's Word and sit through the service. And, and that's challenging at times, but um, we think that it's necessary. Um, but at the same time, we don't want to cultivate a environment of chaos so at any time if you need to take the child out don't feel out of place feel like you have to keep the child there with you the entire time uh, there's no inherent value and and um, and families just being together cults do that every day um, but we have a desire here to cultivate um, godliness and to train our children in the way that they ought to go and and that makes it difficult here at times but um, we also recognize that sometimes we need to take the children out for whatever reason um, so you feel comfortable doing that, and if you have any questions about the nursery or where it's at or anything like that, um, just lean over and ask one of the men here, one of the ladies here, and they'd love to help you. Um, there's just such a spirit of service and help here at this church, and we praise God for that. Um, people going out of their way just to love on others, and um, it's just a blessing to, to pastor you and to be a part of this church. I want you, want you all to know that. If you will, we'll stand for the reading of God's Word out of reverence for it. And we'll take our reading up in Mark chapter number 9 and verse number 30. And we're going to read through verse number 41. By the inspiration of the Spirit of God, Mark pens these words. And they departed from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know it. For he taught his disciples and said to them, The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And after he is killed, he will rise the third day. But they did not understand this saying, and were afraid to ask him. And then he came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What was it you disputed among yourselves on the road? But they kept silent, for on the road they had disputed among themselves who would be the greatest. And he sat down, called the twelve, and said to them, If anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all, and servant of all. And then he took a little child and set him in the midst of them, And when he had taken him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one of these little children in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Now John answered him, saying, Teacher, we saw someone who does not follow us casting out demons in your name. And we forbade him because he does not follow us. But Jesus said, Do not forbid him, for no one who works a miracle in my name can soon afterwards speak evil of me. For he who is not against us is on our side. For whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name, because you belong to Christ, assuredly, I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the word of God. Father, we thank you for the privilege it is to sit under um, the reading of the word of God. Father, even as my, uh, even myself, I know that I'm going to bring the, the word of God, Father, in a, a teaching fashion here in just a moment. And Oftentimes that seems or feels like me ministering to others, but oh, how you often um, satisfy and refresh my soul, Father, even in the, the activity of preaching. How often, Lord, you'll take the Word of God to places that it has not yet gone, as the truth is brought to bear upon my own heart, Father. Oh, how you'll often convict me of my own sins and my own shortcomings and my own failings, Father, as the Word of God is read or even preached in my own mind. Father, how often you'll remind me at the same time of your grace, um, how much of a treasure it is and how tremendous Christ is. And Father, how much grace has been extended to uh, a wretched sinner like myself who was at one time rebellious and walking my own direction, but you gloriously saved and made, uh, made, a, made, it, made me of one of that, that number in Revelation chapter 5 of ten thousands of ten thousand and thousands of thousands. Father, I am a part of those nations whom your son uh, loved and died for, and I pray that everyone in front of me is as well. Father, I pray that each person here knows the grace of Christ in a practical and an experiential way. Father, I pray that um, you would just take the word of God to, um, 
to, to the hearts of your people this morning and to the hearts of those, Father, that may not be, and that you would accomplish a mighty work. May um, dead men live this morning, Father, as they come to Christ, and may alive men who are already in you, Father, be strengthened in their faith, convicted of sin, brought closer and more nigh to Christ as a result, Father, of our gathering together. May the, the glory of the Lord be displayed, Father. Um, upon this people here and now as we gather around your word, Father, and joyfully submit to whatever you bring before us. God, may you give us an attitude of submission this morning um, as we approach your word, Father. May you accomplish mighty things as we come here this morning, Father, and sit under Mark chapter number 9, and particularly Jesus' teaching. Father, may you open our blinded eyes, may you open our deaf ears, may you soften, Father, our hardened hearts, and may the word of God go forth with power, even discerning uh, the very thoughts and intents of our, our heart. Father, we leave this work in your hands because we know that we cannot accomplish it ourselves. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You can be seated. Bless you. And if you've not been with us and you're visiting with us or you've not been with us for some time, um, we've simply taken um, the book of Mark as a whole. We began in uh, Mark chapter number 1 some time ago, and um, we're just working our way through the gospel. First time as a pastor that I've preached through um, a gospel, and what a blessing it's been. And I pray that it's been a blessing to you who has sat underneath it. Um, I'm more geared towards um, the didactic teaching, those letters, those epistles who, uh, who tell me, Paul, I love Paul. He just tells me like it is. Tells me what to do and what not to do. Um, he tells me, uh, you know, it's black and white with him oftentimes. Um, but there's so much more within the Word of God contained within it um, that is more narrative, it's more pictures, it's more stories, it's historical. The vast majority of your Bible is just that. And you glean from the story. God is a great storyteller. And one of the greatest stories ever told, or the greatest story ever told, is contained within. Um, this gospel here within Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And um, it's irreplaceable and invaluable. Um, you cannot calculate the cost of, of what we have contained within these 16 chapters as we glean um, into the very life of our, the Lord, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So that's been our task, and what a, what a blessing it's been. And uh, this week we come to Mark chapter number 9 and verse number 30, and we simply pick up with the next verse. Um, as you would read a letter or you would read a book, that's how we're reading the Word of God and we're seeking to understand it. And last week, uh, actually the past two weeks, we picked up in Mark chapter number 9. Um, in this particular portion of the, the Gospel, uh, Mark somewhat changes direction. Uh, for, for the first eight chapters, the Lord Jesus Christ and the, the bulk of His three and a half year ministry, He had given to, in a large portion to the public. Um, doing miracles and just exemplifying His divine nature um, by displaying His glory in the healing of the blind, in the healing of the deaf, in the healing of the lame, in the uh, ceasing of the wind and the waves, and in a number of um, experiences. He's saying, essentially, I am God. Um, in the last portion of the book of Mark, almost split down the middle, the Lord Jesus Christ, um, he, he takes the last portion of His ministry and focuses in on the few men um, that He had determined to walk with Him to the cross and whom He would ordain as apostles um, to be the foundation of the church, would be empowered at Pentecost to take the gospel to the nations. And that's exactly what we see. We see here that now um, He has focused His teaching in on what we might say is a few good men, but they're not really good men. <laughs> you know, um, But they're good in the sense that God chose them, and God saved them, and God gloriously gave them a new heart, and God is patient and long-suffering with them. And here in this portion of Scripture, we'll see um, an example of that um, long-suffering and graciousness of the Lord as He's patient with His children. And I pray that it will remind you of the grace that God has often extended us. Um, that while we don't have a book written about us, oh, how often God is just simply and gloriously patient with us as we as we live our lives, and oftentimes not for Him, but for ourselves. But in verse number 30, our Lord return, or turns again His attention to His disciples in, in teaching them. The topic of discussion is becoming what is a regular occurrence in the disciples' life. He turns to His passion. That's often what we refer to as His passion. Um, we could also refer to it as His death. Again, the last portion of Mark is directed that way. His ministry no longer focuses on the crowds, but on the disciples, those whom are His. 
He's becoming more intimate with them and revealing to them things that they, that they, they don't understand, particularly His death and His resurrection. And that's what we read in verse number 30. And then they departed from there and passed through Galilee, and He did not want anyone to know it. For He taught His disciples and said to them, The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill Him. And after He's killed, He will rise the third day. But they did not understand this saying and were afraid to ask Him. The text says that they left that place, that place, um, and they passed through Galilee. They had been on the Mount of Transfiguration. They had came down um, off of it, and they're passing through Galilee. That doesn't seem that important to us. But it is because the ministry of Galilee was almost the primary ministry of our Lord. This is the last time um, that He will pass through Galilee. And He's going to a place called Capernaum, which is also the headquarters of much of His, his ministry. But because Jesus didn't want anyone to know where they were, um, he went to a place um, that was somewhat secluded. And the text tells us exactly why. Why? Because he wanted to teach his disciples. He wanted a place where he could get away from the crowds and be alone with his men. And it says in verse 31, The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him. This was the topic of his um, teaching. The word betray there literally means to be delivered up. It means to be handed over. There's a debate upon the who the who is here in this passage of Scripture. Who handed him over? Oftentimes we, we read this passage and we read into it from what we know that he's speaking of Judas, but uh, most Christians throughout the ages have, have looked at this verse and read it as they would have read it and, um, and that the subject is possibly speaking of God. But it's at this point that the Lord, the Father, uh, delivers... Jesus is in the process of delivering. This is a present tense active verb here. It's already actively happening. He's being handed over. The process has begun. His face is set towards Jerusalem. His work is going to be complete. There's no turning back at this moment in the Lord Jesus Christ's mind. Just for a moment, think about in the coming days as He's going to pray to His Lord and He's going to sweat drops of blood and He's going to beg God in some sense that if there's any other way, take the cross from Him. Um, but if not, thy will be done. Think about that. That has begun in his heart. Not only is his face set towards Jerusalem, but his heart is set over towards Jerusalem. That the Father has allowed him to know that his time is coming, that his work is about to be done, and that he will be handed over into the hands of men. That he is being at that moment de delivered up or handed over. So, so the term betrayed there, I don't particularly care for in the New King James. Why? Because it could give the idea that the Father is betraying the Son, but that's not the case at all. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit determined before time ever even began that they would covenant together and that Jesus Christ would voluntarily, willfully become a condescend, become as a man would become. Why? So that He could be in all points like He is and die as Him, thus satisfying the very wrath of God on their behalf. So you and I today, by faith and repentance, come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ simply because the Son came. He willfully gave Himself and lived the life that you should have lived and lived the life that I should have lived and died the death that you should have and died the death that I should have, thus um, satisfying God's wrath and just hand upon sin and allowing us allowing us that great and tremendous opportunity um, to come unto Him. Thus he, stands, he, sits with his, or he stands today even with His arms out, inviting all who will come. Of course, we know that the vast majority of the world will not come. Um, but He's gracious to extend the offer. And those whom Christ died for will come. So He begins to teach them about all of that. He begins to, to delineate that to them in some sense. And the text says... Um, that they did not understand. That Jesus is unfolding the drama of redemption and they stand there with little to no understanding about what He's talking about. And the text says that they were afraid to ask Him. And if you've been with us in the book of Mark at all, you can kind of understand why they're probably afraid to ask Him now. In Mark chapter 8 and verse number 16, um, you see a, a, an illustration of, of what happened when they start asking questions. Um, they're, they're on a boat there in Mark chapter number 8 and verse number 16 and verse number 17. Uh, they ask a question and Jesus being aware of it them says to them, why do you reason because you have no bread? Do you not perceive or understand? Is your heart hardened? Have you eyes and don't see? Don't you have ears but you don't hear? And you don't remember what happened when I broke the bread? 
And then in verse uh, chapter 9, I think it's verse number 19, he says, you faithless generation in response to them. So it's, uh, it's, no, um, it's no, um, I, no wonder um, exactly why they may not want to ask the question. Um, as he teaches, they know that they should understand, but they, they don't. Verse number 33, they come to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he says that he asked them, what was it that you disputed among yourselves on the road? So we continue the conversation, the, 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 the account, uh, the, the disciples on the way to Capernaum after the teaching of the Lord's uh, death, burial, and resurrection that they don't understand, that they push it aside and they begin a new conversation. What's the conversation? Verse number 34, but they kept silent. For on the road they had disputed among themselves who would be the greatest. Who would be the greatest? You know, and it's interesting that they kept quiet. They were silenced. And there's no doubt in my mind that the reason that they kept silent or the reason that they were silenced is because the disciples must have been ashamed or somewhat embarrassed, either for arguing or more likely because of the topic at hand. They were arguing about who the greatest was. After that tremendous teaching of our Lord and Him setting His face towards Jerusalem and Him telling them of the Messiah, He, the Son of Man, is now being handed over into the hands of men, I think by, by God Himself, um, to speak of His suffering, of His death. They don't understand it. And what do they do? They fill the rest of their time up with themselves. Instead of pondering about the greatness of Christ and the teaching on the suffering of the Son of Man, what do they do? Um, like little boys often do, they decide to talk about themselves and their own greatness. So they begin a new discussion, the great question, who is the greatest? Jesus says, looks at them, what are you discussing? In some sense, he's saying, all right, boys, tell me, which one of you is the greatest? None of them will speak up. Um, many believe that they're in Peter's house because it refers to a definite house here. It says the house or that house. It's not just any house. Many believe it's uh, probably Peter or Andrew and they gather together intimately and the Lord just sits them down. There's nowhere for them to run and He provokes their thought. If you were to read Mark, Matthew, and Luke's account of this, you would get the full picture of the entire episode. And it goes something like this. In Mark, there's disputing along the way. Jesus has just taught them of His death, burial, and resurrection. They don't understand I don't think that they really want to understand, to be honest with you. Um, how do we know that? Because Peter often withstands Jesus and rebukes him for even talking about the suffering that he would endure, um, the, the cross that he would bear, the, the life that he would die. Um, they, they, they don't like the idea of it, so they suppress it and even rebuke Jesus at times. Um, so in that, in that suppressing of the truth, um, they, 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 they go off on a route that they often do, speaking about the greatest. There's a disputing along the way. In Luke, Luke tells us that Jesus discerns their very thoughts as they're walking. Mark, again, tells us that Jesus begins to detect their rivalry and challenge between them such that it silences them when Jesus asks. It's something they don't want to talk about in front of their Lord and their rabbi, their teacher. And then Matthew tells us that they just blurted out um, at some point, as Jesus is piercing like five kids sitting before you, six kids, how many every kid you have, two, one, um, eventually the piercing eyes, they just blurt out. We were talking, Lord, about who the greatest was. You know, and you could question as to why they're actually having that conversation. It could be that Peter, James, and John come down off of the mountain. You may remember last week, and they can't cast out demons, and they can't, uh, they can't do things in Jesus' name. It could, uh, it could very well be a discussion among them of who's the greatest. I mean, you guys went up. Right? We were the guys who went up on the mount. You nine didn't. We got down and you couldn't do anything. You know, like there's demons out there. Um, who do you think's the greatest? Um, it could be this. There's this division and this disunity um, that is that is uh, coming between them and our Lord. Uh, doesn't allow it to go for very long at all. He pierces not only with his eyes but into their souls, and he asks them to examine themselves in some sense. And ask them why it is that they're bickering and fighting, fighting over um, who's the greatest. Who's the greatest? Um, so who is the greatest? The disciples are disputing in verse number 34. And it's interesting that our Lord could have rebuked the disciples here. And it would have been just, right? I mean, these kids, these boys, um, very much it could have been that, that, that Jesus gives them enough, another scathing rebuke. But here he takes a different approach. 
He could have said something like, oh, you still don't understand, you faithless generation, you prideful people. I'm talking to you about my death and resurrection and you can't stop talking about yourselves who's greater. Let me tell you, none of you are great. You know, you're, you're, you're worms. You're, 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 you're this, you're that. He could have taken that route and maybe and Jesus would have been just and do it, but He doesn't. Our Lord takes the opportunity to settle the dispute with teaching them on the matter an object, with an object lesson, if you will. What's the subject again? It says there in verse number um, 34, they kept silent from the road and they disputed. Verse 35, and he sat down. He took the position as a rabbi and a teacher. In those days in synagogue, you wouldn't have a man stand behind a pulpit. A rabbi, a teacher would have sat down. Um, he would have sat down before them and entered into the teaching position and then the disciples would have gathered around his feet. That's the idea. In Peter's house, possibly, in this intimate setting, uh, there's a dispute going upon. There's disunity and pride being cultivated. Thus, Jesus patiently and long-sufferingly sits, without not rebuking them, um, sits down to teach them and takes His position. And there's no doubt that they gather around His, his feet. And another interesting thing is that He doesn't really criticize them for their desire for greatness. Maybe that didn't catch your attention. It didn't really me as well either. Um, there's a desire to lead. There's a desire to excel. And Jesus doesn't actually criticize that. But the desire for greatness is not something undermined for, by our Lord. But viewed in the perspective of having some righteous priorities. He doesn't look at them and say, you shouldn't want to be great. You shouldn't want to be seen. You shouldn't want to lead the way. No, instead, he takes a few moments to define them for them what true greatness is. That he doesn't undermine what greatness is. And he doesn't say that you shouldn't desire to be great. You know, that sounds strange to us as Christians sometimes. Because it seems to us that humility says that you shouldn't desire to be great. But actually, humility seeks after the greatness um, that God defines. And that's what he deals with here, what true greatness is. And this is actually what um, Christians throughout the ages have believed. Uh, one writer writes, Jesus is not opposed to the ambition of His disciples being greater than others. He encourages that ambition in all of them. He does more. He urges all of them to strive to be first, not merely greater than others, but even to be the greatest. I think it was Jonathan Edwards, that great uh, Puritan, um, who has done monumental and incalculable work for the kingdom of Christ. As he writes, as an 18-year-old boy, on his 70 resolutions, he had resolved to be something for God. One of those, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken, um, is summarized like this, that he would be the most complete Christian on the face of the earth in his generation. That that's what he desired. He desired and resolved to be and to do something for the cause of Christ. To, and even to lead in the pack and to, to lead the way that he had a desire for greatness. But that greatness was not governed by his own um, definition. That greatness was, was governed by God and what he thought greatness. Another writer writes this in a book called Spiritual Leadership. Oswald Sanders writes, Jeremiah's counsel to Baruch in the Old Testament, Seekest thou great things for thyself, seek them not, is uh, pertinent. He goes on to say he's not warning against ambition per se, but against self-centered ambition. Great things for thyself, he says. A desire to be great is not necessarily in itself sinful. It's the motivation that determines the character. Our Lord did not discount or disparage aspiration of greatness, but He did pointedly expose and stigmatize unworthy motivation. He goes on to say all Christians are under obligation to make the most of their lives, to develop to their utmost God-given powers and capacities, but Jesus taught that any ambition that centers or terminates on itself is wrong. On the other hand, an ambition that centers on the glory of God and the welfare of His church is not only legitimate, but positively praiseworthy, He says. But Jesus doesn't simply criticize or rebuke these men for seeking to be great or even to be the greatest in the kingdom of God, but He teaches them how, and it's how to focus that desire for greatness in the appropriate way. So He sits down, He calls the twelve to themselves, and he says, if anyone desires to be first, he says, he shall be last of all and servant of all. You know, and to us in a modern day American context, that makes no sense. And of course, you're good Christians, it makes sense to you. But at the same time, I think in our own hearts and our own minds, often we quarrel with this, this thing of being the greatest. Why? Because the greatest says, 
To be at the forefront. The greatest says to be at the top. The greatest is often governed by how many servants you have, not by how you serve. It's governed by all the accolades and all the rewards and all the, 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 the history that will be written about you. Um, but Jesus turns it completely upon itself as He often does. You know, It's a paradox. He tells the disciples, if you, if you want to live, you must die. You know? If you want to, 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 to lose your, if you want to save your life, you must first lose it. You know? he, he, and here he says that if you want to be first, then you shall be last, and the, the last shall be uh, first. And that's not what you hear from a Fortune 500 company. That's not what you hear in modern day uh, from CEOs and in the corporate context. If you want to be first, you know, they tell you, then you have to persevere. You have to walk over whoever it is you have to walk over. You have to climb up the ladder, you know, one rung at a time. You have to do this. You have to do that. And you have to take reins. You have to, you have to be the boss. You have to do what it takes to make it to the top. But Jesus takes a different route and he says, if you want to be first, that's not how you get it. You be last. You become a servant. The term here is diakonos. It's the term deacon. You're a table waiter. You want to be first, wait on people. You want to be first, serve people. You want to be first, wash some people's feet. You want to be first, do the menial tasks that are cast aside by the vast majority of people and do them in Christ's name. No doubt in their mind they're thinking, this makes no sense. <laughs> you know, We want to be those guys who pull down fire from heaven. We want to be at the forefront. Uh, no doubt they had a, a messianic triumphalism that the nation of Israel was going to be just that and do just that. That when the Messiah came, um, we're going to be the greatest. We're going to be the greatest nation. How are we going to do that? We're going to do that by pouring out fire on all the pagans. And now Jesus comes with a different message. No wonder they're quarreling in their mind with whether or not this is the Messiah. Because everything that they knew about Him and everything that they thought about the Old Testament and their interpretation says that when He comes, He's coming uh, with, 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 with judgment on His back. And you get this guy who's sitting before us and asks us to, to, to follow Him and to take up our cross and to die and to do these things. It's just no wonder they don't understand. They don't want to understand. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense to us. You know why? Because we're all born with the nature of sin and the seed of pride. You know, humility is foreign to the human DNA. It's alien to the human heart. Every human heart desires significance. Every human heart that enters into this world desires something greater and it desires to be the greatest. We're born into this world, especially in the American context, with this idea that we are going to be great. And we're going to do great things. At some point, it's often um, disparaged and, and apathy and, and, and complacency settles in. But at the end of the day, um, the natural tendency and inclination of modern man and man throughout the ages has been to, to, to live life in such a way that it means something. You know, you want to mean something and I want to mean something. And oftentimes our sinful nature governs that. Thus, it, it governs the way that we lead our homes and it governs the way that we lead our church and it governs the way that we um, advance in a career and it governs this and it governs that. Um, and Jesus comes and He turns all of that upon his, its head. And Jesus takes the teaching and He pulls a little boy aside and He uses this little guy as an object lesson for these men to teach them something that I pray that they never forgot and something today that I pray that you never forget either. If you were to turn to Matthew chapter number 18, you would see um, a little bit more context of um, exactly what he's teaching there. Um, in Matthew 18, it would be the parallel passage for this. In verse number 1, it says, At that time the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus called a little child to him and in the midst of them and said, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you're converted and become as little children... You will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depths of the sea. What God is looking for in this world and what God desires and what, and what culminates in greatness is humility. 
God is looking for a humble people. That's what He's teaching the disciples. Get it for a moment. All right? You've got these guys in whom the, the cross has just been born in teaching. And it should humble them that the Son of Man has to go and bear their own sins. And instead of examining themselves, they're saying, who's the greatest? And Jesus is looking at them and saying that unless you humble yourselves, you will no wise enter into the kingdom of heaven. That God desires a humble heart. And that God is looking for a humble people. Isaiah 66, 1 and 2, Heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool, where is the house that you will build for me? And where is the place of my rest, God says? For all those things my hand is made, and all those things exist as the Lord. But on this I will look, on Him who is a poor and a contrite spirit, and who trembles at His word. Micah 6, 8, And what does the Lord require of you who do justly, but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? Luke chapter 14 and verse 11, Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And here's the idea. You have a group of men who are gathering together, bickering and complaining and striving and creating disunity and cultivating um, ungodliness among them. Why? Because they want to be exalted. And Jesus comes and says, I want you to be exalted too. But you're not going to be exalted that way. Exaltation is your ultimate goal, but you're, you're trying to do it through worship of yourself. And I'm telling you that you must become like a little child, humble yourselves and, and, and worship me is kind of the idea there. That the disciples needed to be humbled because they were so full of pride and Jesus takes a little child and teaches them exactly what humility looks like. Um, that the greatness of humility is service. It's manifested in a servant's heart. In laying aside one's own glory for the glory of another. And, in a, and that's exactly what you see in the person of Jesus Christ. That's exactly what they didn't understand. Thus, there's a sense in which He's teaching them again after He got done teaching them the cross, teaching them how the cross applies to their life. That if the exaltation is to come, then you need to lay aside your own glory. And ultimately, as we read this morning in Philippians chapter number 2, that's exactly what Jesus did. He lays aside His own glory. He lays aside Himself and His rights and His majesties and His glories. And in doing so, Jesus, or God the Father exalts Him to a, uh, to a name above every other name. That, at his na that, that name, every knee would bow and every tongue would confess um, to the glory of God the Father. And that's exactly what He's teaching them here. That exaltation comes through the cross. Exaltation comes through service. Exaltation comes through laying aside your own glory for the glory of another and ultimately for the glory of God. And it's positively praiseworthy, as the commentator earlier said, to seek to be the greatest by being the least. Desiring to establish the kingdom of God through service. And that's work. Thus you must work at it. But at the same time, it's His work that He came not to be served, but to serve. In Mark chapter number 10, we're jumping ahead, but He teaches almost the exact same thing later. Why? Because they still don't give it. That greatness comes through serving. Verse number 35 of Mark 10. James and John, they're there. They're there just a few days or months earlier. The sons of Zebedee came to Him saying, Teacher, we want You to do uh, for us whatever we ask. And He said to them, What do You want Me to do for You? And they said to him, grant us that we may see it. One on your right hand and the other on the left and in your glory. But Jesus said to them, you don't know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with? You want exaltation. But you're not ready to go through what I'm going through. And if you're ready, then exaltation will come. But this is the way. This is the route. This is the motive. They said to him, we're able. Jesus said to him, you indeed drink the cup that I drink and you'll be baptized with the, uh, what I, uh, with the baptism I am baptized with, you will be baptized. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it is prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to greatly be greatly displeased with James and John. But G Why? Because we're the greatest. But Jesus called to them himself and said, you know, that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever, you desire, whoever of you desires to be first shall be the slave of all. 
For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. That's the lesson. That Jesus desires for you to be first and that you should be desire also to be first and to be exalted. But that exaltation and that being first comes through humility. It comes through being a servant to all. And Jesus takes, so Jesus takes this little child and He tells them that, that to become great or to become first, that you will have to he says, whoever receives one of these little children in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. You know, we read this text and we read it in an American modern day context. And we read it and we think, oh yeah, you know, children. Of course they'll receive babies, right? Because the modern concept of babies is adorable. You know, you see a little one, we look around and we think, oh my. Give me more of those. You're just so squishy and lovable and wonderful and this and that. But to, ask, but, but to answer the question that Jesus is asking them and, the, and, and, and to, to exemplify the illustration that He's giving, it's so important for us to go back and ask the question, what's the predominant view of children in the culture they're living in? You know, in the culture of Rome, or in the Roman culture, children were considered to be the lowest of the low. In our, while in our culture, little babies are adorable, in the ancient world where the mortality rate was so high that the vast majority of babies were born perished before the age of five, that a little baby was not considered that significant by society until the child reached an age that they considered likely to survive to maturity and to contribute to society. So Jesus takes a small child and uses him as an object lesson to represent uh, greatness in the kingdom of heaven. And it's not just them becoming like a child, but them receiving the child. Them receiving those who have no social status and are culturally outcasts. That's exactly what they did. That He's not speaking of them coming like a child here. That He's, he's speaking of them receiving a child, someone who is a, a social literal outcast, someone with no value and someone with no status. That's the idea here. That the child represents the lowest order in the social scale in these days. That the one who is under the authority and care of others who has not yet achieved the right of self-determination. That to become like a child is to forego status and to accept the lowest place to be a little one. A one whom can just simply be cast aside. You know, and this, is, um, this was very prominent in Roman elite practices. When a baby was born um, in a Roman elite family, the nurse would come out of the room and they would sit the baby at the feet of the father. Um, usually he would be an aristocrat. And if the father bent down and received the child, then the child would become part of the family. Um, but if the, the father stood up and he walked out of the room, um, then the baby would be picked up by the nurse, carried outside and left on the doorstep to be either carried away um, in life and death um, by the elements or by wild beasts that would come by. That, that, that they were considered to be the lowest of the low. Um, and, and, and that the father and during those days had ultimate authority to, to discharge the child at any moment, especially at birth. I mean, this is the idea of children. And let me say that the idea that the, the disciples had of children is not much farther than that. Um, I think it's in um, Matthew chapter number 19. You read these words by the disciples. Verse number 13. These little children were brought to Him that He might put His hands on them and pray. But the disciples rebuked Him. Speaking of our Lord. But Jesus said, Let the little children come to Me. Do not forbid them. For of such is the kingdom of heaven, and He laid hands on them. But what Jesus is teaching here is that the mark of a humble person um, is, is marked out by who you receive in Jesus' name. That greatness comes in recognizing the true value of all, including those whom the world would receive, deem as an outcast. Ultimately, in receiving those people in Jesus' name, is to reject the lie of the world and to submit to the truth of God. You know? But you might look at a church and you might mark out its greatness by its preaching, its singing, its multi-million dollar ministry. But Jesus looks at a, a man, a woman, a church, and He marks the greatness of that ministry by looking at whom they receive and who they reject. And Jesus is saying, in a sense, if you want to be great, then do what I've done. Embrace the lowly. 
Embrace the outcast. Embrace those that the society has cast aside. Those people are those who are great. You know, at the same time in the first and second century, as, as, as Roman elites and aristocrats and even some of the common men in upper ranks would sit their children outside and, and leave them to the elements, there was a group of women, particularly through the first and second century, that made it their ministry to go out in the middle of the night and forego sleep and forego years of their life to, to walk through the streets to hear for a crying baby. So that they could go by and pick up those little ones um, who were on the streets and left to die. And they would take those home and bring them under the care of families and bring them under the care of the church. And those that were outcasts, those would be brought in because they were seen as valuable. That those were, were, were true servants. They didn't look at their bank account and they didn't look at their house and say, there's not enough room here. We don't have enough funds. We don't have enough finances. You know, Let's let welfare take care of them. Let's let the state um, take care of it. And in those days, the state didn't. It was either take them or die. It was either let them go. It was either go get them or let them go. And these people, these, the, the early church was so compelled by the love of Christ that they would seek out opportunity to love on those who were the unlovely. And those who were the outcasts, they would cast them into the kingdom of God. They would bring them into their bosom and they would love on them for as long as it took. Those were great men. Those were great women. Those were great families. And that was a great church, Jesus says. Most of whom you will never know their names. You ever think about some of the great preachers of days gone past that we talk about? Men like Spurgeon, men like Mueller, men like George Whitfield. You know what also marked their ministries that made them great? Not just their preaching, although it was pure and wonderful and Christ-centered, but you know what else they had in common? They all started orphanages. To care for the children that were displaced from home and by society. That's what made them great men. That's what made them great in the kingdom of heaven. You know who the greatest in the kingdom of heaven is? Mothers and fathers who pour their lives into their children, striving to, to raise their children in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. Missionaries who give their lives to the work of, with children in third world orphanages and countries. Those that work in community pregnancy centers doing their best to point to uh, those single mothers and those babies to Jesus. Those who stand out at abortion clinics. You think that Roman practice was bad? Like Our nation is even worse. We've cast it off as health care. And those little ones are put to death under the, the, the law and the authority of our state. That those who are going to be great in the kingdom of heaven are to pursue service. And it's not just about children. I don't want to give you the idea today that it's 100% totally just about taking care of babies. That's not it at all. The idea is, is taking care of, of those who are outcasts, those who are Christ's, and to receive them is to receive Christ. That's the idea. That's what he says in verse number 37. Whoever receives one of these little children in my name receives me. And it's totally conjecture on my part, but I'm convinced that um, as many sermons as Spurgeon, Whitfield, and all these other guys put out, that maybe God took a lot more notice of how many children they rushed into the, off the street and put them in the care of families, the local church, and under the teaching of God's Word. Why? Because faith without works is dead. Sermons, while glorious, the means to accomplish eternal work without works only condemn you. Men like Spurgeon, men like Mueller, men like Whitfield all believe the message that they preached and the gospel pervaded their hearts so much that it, that it led to service outside the walls of the church. And it only manifested it one way in caring for the orphans and the widows and leading their church in the charge of serving the least of these. That's what it means when Jesus speaks of them as being the least of these. He's not inherently speaking about size or that they're the littlest ones, but they are those of low social status and just being cast aside. And Jesus is saying, disciples, you've got a little bit of that idea and attitude in your heart as well. Don't hinder them from coming to me. Verse number 38, you read another account that may seem somewhat separated, but I think it, it kind of gives the exact same idea. Now John answered him saying, Teacher, we saw uh, someone uh, who, who does not follow us casting out demons in your name. And we forbade him because he does not follow us. But Jesus said, Don't forbid him, or do not forbid him. For no one who works a miracle in my name can soon afterwards speak evil of me. For he who is not against us is on our side. For whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name because you belong to Christ, 
Assuredly, I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Um, Jesus goes from one concrete expression of greatness in the kingdom of God to another. First, serve the little ones, those who are outcasts, who can't serve themselves. Second, serve God's servants. John mentions that, um, you know, at some point, so, so at some point in this teaching, John's mind is pricked. This doesn't happen now. And somewhere in the midst of it, Jesus is telling them whom they need to receive. And John thinks about a time when they wouldn't receive a man, um, a servant, someone who was outside the twelve. Again, um, he, he, Jesus is dealing with the pride of these men. And John thinks about a time in which, um, as a result of them not being in the twelve, they look at a man who's doing the work of Christ, but not with them, such that they condemn him because they are not with him. So Jesus is teaching on receiving certain type of people, and John thinks, wow, like we didn't receive that person, were we wrong in doing so? So Jesus tends to that, 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 that question. And Jesus says, don't forbid him, right? So one came casting out demons, and it's probably pricking their mind even more because they just tried to cast out demons, and they couldn't. Um, but we forbade him, you know? We saw someone out there casting out demons in your name, and we forbade him because he does not follow us. Jesus says, uh, don't forbid him. For one who works a miracle in my name can soon, cannot, uh, soon, can he soon after speak evil of me? And the, it's a rhetorical question. The idea is no. And he tells them, for he who is not against us is on our side. For whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name because you belong to Christ, assuredly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Jesus says, leave them alone. Why? Because it's wrong. It's wrong for you to forbid him. If he's out there casting out demons in my name today, then, then the chance is, is that tomorrow he won't be cursing me like the Pharisees and the scribes. Leave him alone. Um, the broad principle is similar to uh, 12 verse 30 where he says, uh, actually in Matthew, in Matthew chapter 12 and verse number 30, you see a principle where Jesus actually says, um, if, if he's not with us, then he's against us. And many people take that as a contradiction. But you have to study the context. In Matthew chapter 12 and verse number 30, he's speaking of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. So he's speaking of people who are outside the faith, um, who are trying to do things in Jesus' name. And if they're not with us, then they're against us. If they're blaspheming the name of the Spirit of God, then don't walk with them. But here the context is different. Here he's casting out Jesus, or demons in Jesus' name. Um, but he's simply not with them. So the disciples say, if he's not with us, then he must be against us. He's got to be part of our group. The context is different. And the question is not about the ultimate faith of this man, the, 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 but, but that he is opposing darkness. And the disciples are not on board with that, that if he's not with us, then he must be against us because he's not in our crowd. But Jesus rebukes them. And he says, whoever gives you a cup of cold water in my name, he won't lose his reward. And he gives us the second mark of greatness. The second mark of greatness is really the same as the first. It's just illustrated different. It's revealed by those whom you serve. True greatness is giving a cup of cold water in Christ's name. True greatness is serving others because of what Christ has done for you. In Matthew chapter number um, 25 um, is another great illustration of this. Matthew 25 and verse number 31, you read these words. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the holy angels with Him, then He'll sit on the throne of His glory. All the nations will be gathered before Him and He'll separate them out. And He goes on, He says, verse 33, And He will set the sheep on His right hand, but the goats on His left. And then the King will say to those on His right hand, Come, you blessed of My Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And He says this, this is the application. For I was hungry and you gave Me food. I was thirsty and you gave Me drink. I was a stranger and you took Me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick and are in prison or come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren... You did it to me. And then he will say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into everlasting life, prepared for the devil and his angels. 
for I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not take me in. And in verse 44, then they will also answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and we didn't minister to you? And then he'll answer and say, assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. And this is the idea that those who receive the brethren, the least of these, the outcasts, the children, um, those people out there serving in Christ's name who aren't exactly like us, um, those who are, are out there and those whom, whom come to us for help and we refuse, uh, it is to refuse Christ. That's the idea. To receive one in Jesus' name is to receive Jesus. That to reject one in Jesus, or to reject one on account of our own pride is to reject Christ. That pride here refuses and rejects deity. That's his argument. Uh, verse number 39 again. Do not forbid him for, for no one who works a miracle in my name can soon afterwards speak evil of me. Uh, verse number 41. Whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name because you belong to Christ, assuredly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. And in Matthew, I believe, or Luke's account, it says that and if you receive me, you receive the Father. That to reject those whom are the lowest in Christ's ranks on account of anything is to reject Christ Himself. That's the idea. John, you know what you should have done to that man? Lord, should we have rebuked him? No. You know what you should have done? You should have asked him, are you thirsty? Do you need a cup of water? Do you need something to eat along the way? Do you need some help? Do you need some aid? But to receive Him is to receive Christ, is the idea. And the whole purpose of this passage is that we ought to... We should desire to be great in Christ's kingdom because our greatest desire is His kingdom and that He is our greatest love. And that there should be a holy ambition in each of us to say, Lord, I want to make a mark in this life by Your grace for Your kingdom and for You alone. And that's good. I don't want to go through this life as a nominal Christian, never wanting to be seen or never to be heard or never to be thought of. And we think that that's some force of, form of humility. Using false humility as a guise for laziness and indifference, saying, oh, I'm far too humble to ever be first. No. You should have a holy ambition to be at the leading the charge in service because that's what Christ did and that your exaltation will come through that, but it won't be because of anything that you are, but everything because of what Christ is. That sometimes humility speaks up. Sometimes humility raises its voice. Why? Because those are the, for those who are voiceless. For those little ones, the proverb says, that can't speak up for themselves, you're to speak up for them. For those who cannot be heard, uh, the humility stands in the gap for babies. It stands in the gap for the outcasts. It stands in the gap for the shunned. It stands in the gap for those who cannot speak for themselves. And it doesn't do it for themselves. It does it for Christ's sake. And the great question for us today as we listen to this sermon and we read this word and we try to glean from Christ's teaching is where is your ambition? What do you want to be great at? Anything? Or do we go throughout life with an attitude of apathy and indifference thinking that that's somewhat godly not to be seen or not to be heard? And the reality is, is that when you serve Christ, there is a potential. This opens up a potential for greatness in everything you do. I mean, think about it. He's going to ask you on that day when he separates the sheep and the, the sheep and the goats. He's going to look at some people and say, um, you know, "Why didn't you bring me a cup of cold water?" You're going to say, "Lord, I never even saw you." And say, "Yeah, but whenever so and so came, and you refused to sacrifice and service." Your, your, that opportunity because of this or that. It was as if you, you denied me. Do you see the reality that this brings into every single thing that we do into eternal value? That whenever Paul says that you are to, 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 to do everything to the glory of God, whether you eat or whether you drink or whatsoever you do, that's only a small portion of, 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 of everything that we do. Right? The, 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 
and that, that it has all eternal value. That everything that you, you did this week um, had a potential to carry weight and glory. It had a, had a potential to bring, into, to bring value to, 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 to eternity and to someone's life. It had the opportunity to exalt Christ in the giving of something, the sacrificing of something, and the serving of someone. Yet oftentimes we allow um, our pride and our false guise of humility to destroy all of these opportunities. Why? Because we need to be prudent. We need to be prudent with what we have. And that's great. And we encourage that. And we need to plan and and a number of other things and to be prudent with God's and and good stewards and to be found faithful. But at the same time, sometimes the wisest thing to do is to sell everything that you have and follow Jesus. Sometimes it is to recognize your own value and the value of that other person and, and be willing to give everything that you have because that's what Christ did for you. Instead of bickering and arguing over uh, among, among the disciples, you know, um, this or that, who's worthy and who's not, and who's great and who's not, who's going to sit at the right hand and who's going to sit at the left, who cares? Because you shouldn't be in there at all. I shouldn't be there at all. But grace has been so extended to us in Christ such that um, we have the honor that we never deserved. May not pride overwhelm our hearts and souls such that it destroys unity within this body. That's what you see in this passage. You see, pride, the silence, the evil spoken of there among themselves. And it causes them to bicker and it causes them to complain. It causes them to argue. It forfeits true honor. It forfeits true honor. The honor is what they desired. And isn't it interesting that in the pursuit of honor, they lost it. It's like in Matthew 6, that if you pray um, to be heard, that's your reward. If you, if you fast to be seen, then you have your reward. And if you give and do this, then, then, then you have your reward. And I'll say to you on that day, Lord, Lord, you know, we'll say to you, Lord, Lord, we cast out demons. We did all this. And I think the Lord will say, depart from me, you work of iniquity. I never knew you. You have your reward, right? That true honor is found in Christ and receiving people as Christ and seeking out to serve as Christ. That pride forfeits true honor. Pride rejects deity. It's a rejection of Christ. This is serious. You must become like a child. You must receive them uh, as a child. A child has no power, no accomplishment, no greatness, no weak. Or they're weak, they're dependent, they're ignored. And they have nothing to offer. This is... You look at a person and you look at people and you look at things and you think, um, is this beneficial to do it all? Right? And you weigh it out. And then we look at Jesus and wonder, was it beneficial Him to come at all? Of course it was. And in that act, it made it beneficial. In redeeming people out of every nation, out of every tribe, and out of every tongue, He accomplished the work. And Jesus gives that work to you and to me. And that pride also creates exclusivity. It pushes people out of the kingdom. But maybe we could take those four things. Pride, um, destroying unity. We could say humility breeds and cultivates unity. We say that it brings people together for the cause of Christ. It, it, it reveals the avenue of true honor and it doesn't reject deity. It receives Christ as He is and ultimately it gains reward. Sometimes we devalue people as they seek after something for something, right? They're only doing it for that thing. Paul often says that the reason that he strives is for the reward. To receive the prize and that great prize is Christ. That you should strive in this life to be first. But that firstness, that, 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 to be at the forefront in Christ's kingdom is to be last. And to be last is to be a servant. And to serve others and to recognize that as a mother, as a father, as, as this or that, and that, 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 that's what you are. You ever think about that? That's all we're to be. You know what a father is? A servant of his children. You know what a mother is? A servant of her little ones. You know what a husband is? A servant of his wife. You know what a wife is? A servant to her husband. You know what a pastor is? A servant to his congregation. You know what a congregation is? A servant to one another. And a servant to his pastor. You know what a citizen is? A servant of the state. You know what a, you know what a, magi- a civil magistrate is? A servant of the people. That is all that we were created to be. 
We were created to serve one another. Sin enters into the world. Pride destroys mankind. And now people come out of the womb, hell-bent towards everybody else worshiping them. And God brings in the Gospel through Jesus Christ our Lord to give us that great example and to uh, satisfy the wrath of God and to lay before us the reality of what God desires for a man and your ultimate pursuit. So pursue them. Fathers, pursue your children in service. Mothers, pursue your children in service. Husbands, pursue your wives in service. And and, and vice versa. You know, this congregation, the greatest thing you'll ever do is not stand up and preach a great sermon. I am convinced of that. That the greatest thing that I will ever do is to come down off of this pulpit and come out from behind these pews and wash a few people's feet. You know, those are the great ones. Some of you will be much greater than me because God has just overwhelmed your heart and brought you out of such, such, such condemnation that forgiveness overwhelms you. And while your names will never be recorded in history, um, I sit at the feet of so many great teachers within this congregation and I can just list things that have happened over the past two weeks that just, just, just bring the grace of God at the very forefront. And I think, man, God's got that's some of God's greatest right there. What they do, they fixed the meal. You know, what they do, they, they just showed up, you know. What they do, they helped move a few things. What they do, they did this and they did that. And know this that those things bear eternal weight and glory as Christ is exalted as you become like he is. You know? And some of us look around and we said we think, you know, I'm not doing anything in this church. What can I do? You can serve. You can serve. And there's a thousand things to do. Why? Because there's a hundred people here. You know, there's 30 families who are living out there in the world and, and things are often falling apart and this is going awry and this or that. And, and, and while it's not in a formal capacity, I encourage all of you just to get in each other's lives and find a way to serve, you know. I mean, I've had people show up at my house this week and do things that, that, that I wasn't able to do. And I think, man, that's great, you know. I think as a church, what could we be doing in the community that would be considered great, you know? Caring for the widows, caring for the orphans, caring for the church, doing this or doing that. You know, those are the things that are going to be great. I'm not interested in building a business. I'm not interested in making a multi-million dollar um, industry. I'm not, I'm not interested in having a bunch of uh, people who work and operate under me. I'm interested, uh, but I am interested in being great and pursuing greatness. I mean, at the same time, you realize what that means. You know? It means your name never being known, but Christ's name being exalted. It means deity not being rejected, but accepted. It means worshiping God and not worshiping yourselves. It means taking up your cross and following Him. It means mourning and weeping. It means um, spending long nights and long days doing things that you never thought you would be able to do and never would want to do. But you're fine spending that life bearing your cross because you realize that that's great. That's great. And that every single thing you do matters. You know? You bring a water bottle up to the pasture, God takes note. You know? You take care of a little one throughout the night, God takes note. You know? You give this or that and the relief of suffering and pain for somebody, God takes note. Um, you fix a meal in the name of Christ for one of Christ's the least of these. God takes note, you know. There are no little ones in the cause of Christ. You need to know that. And you need to know that, that, that it's okay and, and desirable to pursue um, that thing. So how are you pursuing it? Are you pursuing greatness? And inevitably, the quarrel is, is as soon as I say, yes, I am, um, humility's gone, so don't tell me. You know, just pursue it. Make it known among God's family and, um, and accomplish an eternal work. And um, so that the world may know that Christ is in heaven as he gleans into the servant's attitude of Christ Bible Church. Let that be our prayer. Father, we love and thank you and praise you for the glory of your Son. Father, we thank you for the work of Christ who became the servant of all. Father, no task is so low 
that you won't exalt if done in the name of Christ. There is no task that is menial, no task that is cast aside. Father, everything carries with it an eternal value. And man, that makes a day worth so much more. That makes a morning weigh so heavily. That makes a, a night, a simple act, a simple gesture of service, Father, so incalculable. We do not, we will not ever know until that day the weight of all the things that we've done and the value of all the things that we haven't. Father, we're thankful that in Christ He makes all things valuable. We're thankful that He redeems everything in this world from the lowest to the greatest. And He makes those, Father, who are seemingly insignificant and invaluable and the treasure of all eternity in Christ. Father, would you help us as a church to pursue greatness, but not bickering over who's first and who's last and who's fifth and who's sixth. Father, but pursuing one another in humility and in service. Father, that's what we need. Father, we need a church full of little Christs, little Christians, um, who will exemplify the very nature of Christ in Philippians 2, who humbled himself and became like a servant. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. So, Father, let that mind be in us. May pride not cultivate disunity, Father. May it not reject the very Christ who saved us. May it not uh, make people within this congregation or outside exclusive uh, from the congregation because they're not exactly like us, Father. May the love of Christ just cultivate godly character, godly unity, Father, um, acceptance of Christ and just a display of the glory of Christ um, like the world has never seen. Father, and let the world quickly forget us um, when we go. But may they not, because of our existence, forget Christ who is in us and ultimately exemplified. May we fade into existence, but Christ be exalted for all eternity, Father, because of how and why and who he lived for. Father, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.